Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today every year when springtime rolls around there's this thing i like to do with my family i like to lead them in a reading of the 10 plagues you know the the punishments that god delivers to egypt to get the pharaoh to free the israelites from slavery all right so it goes like this We'll be sitting around the table, and it goes call and response style. I go, blood. My family goes, blood. I go, frogs. They go, frogs. Lice. Lice. Wild beasts. Wild beasts. And as is the custom, we each dip a finger in our wine glasses or grape juice, and we make little droplets on our plates as we recite each plague, all the way down to killing of the firstborn. This, of course, is part of the Jewish Passover Seder ritual, uh, except that we're not very religious in my family. So we kind of speed through the ceremony to, to get to the 10 plagues and then we have dinner. Still, I think this ritual reminds us of our heritage, like why we're even here alive as Jews and how for generations people were trying to kill us, but we survived. So, you know, let's eat. Another tradition in my home is that we have tamales on Christmas Eve. That's because my husband is Latino. But my husband and I, we are not as close to our ethnic roots as our parents are. And our daughter is one generation further removed than either of us. And lately, I've been wondering what traditions she'll carry on, if anything at all. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. My guests today, Rebecca Lehrer and Amy Choi, have a term for families like mine, maybe yours too, mashup Americans. That can mean you grew up in a different culture from your parents. It can mean your partner is from a different culture than yours. And Amy and Rebecca, they spend a lot of time thinking about blended cultures and families. And they're going to tell us how they're navigating this stuff in their own homes and give us some ideas about how we might do it in ours. And of course, there will be some amazing Yiddish phrases along the way. Should I go first, Rebecca? Do it, girl. Meet Rebecca and Amy. My name is Amy Sanju Choi, and I'm first-generation Korean-American, the first person in my family to be born in the U.S. My husband is uh, first-generation Colombian-Mexican-American, the first person in his family to be born in the U.S. And Rebecca? 
My name's Rebecca Lehrer, and I'm a first-generation American. My mom's from El Salvador. She's a Salvadoran Jew, and my dad's parents were immigrants to the States, and he grew up in L.A. So um, I'm a Salvadoran Jewish Angelino, <laughs> and I'm married to a many-generation American. Amy and Rebecca are both moms. Amy's got two kids. I have Alejandro Cheson, who is three and... 10 months, he would want me to tell you that he's about to turn four. And then um, Serafina Misan, who is 17 months old. And Rebecca has got a six-month-old. Named Clara Louise, or Clara, depends on who's saying her name. <laughs> and when you're saying her name, what do you say? You know what? It's so funny. I actually switch it up because I haven't decided, which m- maybe that's why she doesn't sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that it? Is that how that works? Um, I say both, Clara, Clara, or Clara, or Claire Bear, or Clarita, Clarita a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes. Amy and Rebecca have been talking about culture and identity since they met back before babies. Amy actually went to high school with Rebecca's husband. He introduced them to each other as grown-ups. They hit it off, and a few years later, they decided to start the Mashup Americans together as a blog. It was Thanksgiving of 2013, um, which was the great Thanksgivinga. I don't know if you recall. Yes, I, I, oh, yes. I do recall. Thanksgiving and Hanukkah were colliding were coming at the together. same time. Right. So there was, you know, and there was something in the air. Like that year, all the food magazines, it was like celebrity chefs that were talking about their Thanksgiving traditions growing up. And it would be like, a, you know, a turkey with Persian rice. Amy and Rebecca felt like the media was speaking directly to people like them, acknowledging mashed upness, and they were surprised to see how their friends and the general public really latched on to Thanksgiving fever. Everyone seemed to be into mashed upness, but for Amy and Rebecca, it was about more than food. I was starting to plan a family. Um, Rebecca had recently gotten married, and we were having a very blunt conversation about like the awkward and hilarious challenges about about our marriages and starting a family that came from being mashups that it never really we didn't think about what it really meant to raise a biracial trilingual household like what did we want our kids to be who who what traditions did we want to um, keep in our family and really as we dug deeper into that what did it mean to be living a life in America in which you had deeply held roots, um, but you were creating new culture as you were moving forward. Mm-hmm. And for Amy and I, despite the fact that we have very different mashups, we actually have so much in common, right? In terms of trying to navigate things that your parents didn't really understand that well, or um, you know, feeling a little bit different, or even just trying to understand, you know, your partner's life and family when that's different from your own. And so when we started, again, as Amy said, we looked around at our friends and I was like, oh, this Nigerian-American friend of mine is marrying this Russian-American, you know, and they're trying to figure out what their wedding looks like. And like, you know, what do we name our kids and all these kinds of things that were really funny and somehow really um, difficult. And, you know, the saying is you can't be what you can't see. We didn't see anybody having these conversations. And we figured to quote the great Mindy Kaling, why not me? Why <laughs> wouldn't we tell the stories ourselves? So Rebecca, you use the phrase, um, you can't be what you can't see. Um, yeah. and, and you mean that in, in like, 
it's hard to know how to be your culture uh, when you can't see your culture reflected around you. Is that correct? Um, actually, you know, I mean, that's interesting too. Uh, but actually what I'm referring to is seeing my own story reflected or me and somebody who looks like me or or Amy and someone who looks like Amy on a podcast or on television or in movies. Where's that character or where's that story being told and not being kind of exoticized, but really a part of culture. You know, what's interesting about that, too, though, I think like as we create these families with um, like, you know, people from different cultures, it's less clear uh, what ethnicity a person might be. And like just speaking personally about my family, I'm a Russian Jew like all my all as far as I know, uh, my roots all go back to Russian Jewry, and my <laughs> and um, my husband is half half Salvadoran, half Mexican. He's very light skinned, and he often gets the comment like, "You're not really Latino." Um, oh, that yeah. good old and, gem. And yeah. our daughter is even more light skinned than him, but we want her to identify as like a Latina Jew, and. Um, when I hear the phrase, you can't be what you can't see, I'm thinking about, like, how can she identify as a Latina Jew if she doesn't look like it and people aren't going to, I don't know, assume that that's what she is. Right. I think that's interesting, too, because, like, it's it, as a parent, you want so much to fortify your children like to prepare them for the outside world, right? And all the expectations that the outside world is going to have. And in this case, it's interesting because I think like if she were darker skinned or she looked more, um, met like kind of America's perceptions of what a Latina looks like, your feeling might be, Okay, I got to prepare you for what what is going to mean to walk through the world right. in brown skin. Yeah, and now you're like, but oh, if you don't look like a brown skin lady, how are you gonna how are you gonna know that you're brown skinned, right? And it's about you know what are all of all of the transmitters of cultures that you have, right? Like being a Jew is not just about religious faith, right? There's like so many different cultural and being Latina is not just about being brown. Mm-hmm. Or not just about speaking Spanish mm-hmm. and having an abuela, although those are awesome parts of it. Mm-hmm. And Rebecca and I are in this process of discovery as well. Like, how do we transmit um, the culture that we want to share with our children um, to them? And also knowing that it it might be painful because they may not either choose the same elements that we choose. They may identify with different parts of their culture that we don't identify with um, and to be kind of willing to be like, okay, here's what I can offer you. And as a first generation person, that's different than say like what my parents could have offered me. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I want to get into talking about language and and how language comes into play in a mashup family. Um, So tell me what languages your parents spoke and, and what you speak and what you're teaching your kids. So I'll start. Um, my um, so my mom, and I think this is the nature of being a diaspora person. Uh, speaks I think six or seven languages. Let's see: Spanish, English, French, German, Hebrew. That's the five of them. Portuguese. They're Portuguese. Yeah, that's the sixth one. When when I was growing up, she spoke Spanish to us, and we were always um, had. 
caregivers who were Spanish speakers. Um, and so I grew up with Spanish in my house. And I so I speak Spanish, English, and Portuguese because I really kind of connected with the Brazilian part of my family on both sides. But I always, like many first-generation people, responded in English. And how about you, Amy? Um, I I was grew up in a household speaking Korean, so my first language is Korean. I learned English, you know, by being in America and then going to school. But I had a very similar experience to Rebecca, which is that my parents spoke Korean to me, aunts and uncles, relatives, everybody who had immigrated kind of at the same time or followed my parents um, all spoke Korean to me. I spoke English back to them. And it was a little bit different than in, like, than Rebecca's experience, which is that in the 80s growing up, me having perfect English was a high priority for my family. Why? So that I could succeed, so that I wouldn't be scorned for having an accent, which my parents dealt with ever since they immigrated here in 73, because so that people wouldn't think that I was mildly villainous or stupid for having an accent. Because, you know, there are many accents that people can have on their English when they live in America that are charming or dignified or uh, fashionable and seems stylish or worldly, having an East Asian accent on your English is not one of those. So it was never, that was, it was very clear growing up that my English was to be great. That said, everybody still spoke Korean in my household. I still, until like junior high, went to Korean Saturday school, which is like a cultural school. Um, But I studied Spanish in school. So the language I learned was Spanish. I ended up marrying a brown guy, and we have lived and traveled extensively in South America and spent a lot of time with his family. So my Spanish is much, much better than my Korean, and my Korean is great if I am drunk and living in Korea. (laughs) (laughs) What are you guys speaking with your kids? Um, We speak... A blend of English and Spanish with our kids in our house. So my husband's Spanish is excellent, but like we both think in English. So we primarily talk to him in English. Our uh, primary caregiver, our nanny for our kids, like we felt very strongly that she be Spanish speaking because she spends, because we both work, our kids spend half of their time with her. And our kids understand both and speak both Spanish and English. And then they know Korean words. And Rebecca? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a six-month-old, so she doesn't do a lot of talking yet, although she's really into saying blah, 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 blah (laughs) right now. Um, So it's the same thing, actually. I mean, Spanish and English with her, her primary caregivers are Salvadoran. So she, um, it's Spanish all day. That's why I'd say Clarita is like the main way we refer to her. So I think like both of you have these like Um, I mean, so English is your primary language, and then you have these sort of secondary languages. And then there's sort of these more peripheral languages where just words get passed down um, here and there. And for me in my house, that's Yiddish, Um, or it was down to me from my mom. My mom grew up with um, her grandmother in the house who spoke primarily Yiddish, learned English when she came here. Um, But what got passed down to me from her were like, words here and there, like tuchus, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and pip- pipic, which is belly button, and yes. kepi, which is head. And then weird phrases like um, dreaminish kind cup. What do does you, that do mean? You know, do you know that Something one? Something about Rebecca? a head? It, it basically means, I don't know the, 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 the like direct translation, but it amounts to stop bothering me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. That, that's um, so and I know funny. how to say trolley car, trolley a car. Oh my. <laughs> I don't know That's why. like in Korea, cell phone is handaphone. 
<laughs> so the there phone. you go. You know a Korean word now. No, but yeah. I think that's that's so true, Hillary. Like, and I I would only also hear those phrases, and I I I I think I misuse them very regularly. But I have one. My grandfather used to say, "Gay cock and off and yam," which I think means "go shit in the ocean." Um, <laughs> cock, cocky is shit, um, and so it's just like go shit in the ocean. Like, get out of here. You're full of shit. Um, and a lot of childhood things like um. Oh, uh, Shayna Punham. Like, oh, yeah. Fi- right? Yeah. Hillary and I are so lucky that they said <laughs> that to us all the time. It means beautiful face. Um, I don't I would never even use the word, but we only say tukus in my house. My husband says tukus. So, <laughs> I know. <you> know. <laughs> Having so many languages at home is great, but Rebecca says it can also mix you up. Okay, there's a word in Hebrew, it's balagan, which is crazy, like craziness or like, you know, a mess. And I thought that was a Spanish word. I swear to God, balagan. my whole life, que balagan, que balagan. And my whole family would be saying this and I just would say it in Spanish to other people. And they're like, that's, that's not a word in Spanish. Um, it turns out it's not. It's a word in Hebrew. So what do you want for your daughter? For me? Oh, mm-hmm. you're, you're asking me. Um, I... That, well, that's what I was going to ask you. <laughs> um, so I, I, what do I want? I want her to, seems very unreasonable now that I'm saying it out loud. Mm-hmm. I want her to like absorb all of these things, mm-hmm. like the, um, the Spanish and the Yiddish, but neither one of us speaks any of it in the house, except for like, we joke that you can tell like which one of us um, is upset about something because I'll go oi and he'll go ai. And, <laughs> <laughs> and she definitely has picked up the ai. Um, but like, other than that, like we like we would have to work hard for her to pick up any um, bits of these languages. More, She gets more Spanish um, just from school, but like we don't live near my in-laws who are native Spanish speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder, like, what do you guys think about the importance of keeping these languages alive within families? And, like, what lengths should you go to to make that happen? Oh, Hillary. Oh, Hillary. God. God. We need a, langu- a guilt language uh, therapist for all of us, for sure, with, well, that, I think with this. For uh, us, we go to great Links, And I think a, a big part of that is recognizing that those links are for me and my husband. And in some way for our parents and our extended family, but really it's for us because I think part of what we have is like a longing to connect to our cultures more. And one of in the ways that one of the tools to do that is with language. Um And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in um, my community right now with a lot of other Korean-American families trying to figure out how to uh, get a Korean Saturday school or an after-school program going where we can, um, the kids can have Korean education. We're thinking of starting one. I mean, you're right. It's like a huge investment in time and work because we're not with our grandparents. And why? Why do you want to do it so much? (sighs) Oh. I think part of it is guilt that I don't have that. I think part of it is that in some ways I feel limited in my ties to my culture because I don't speak the language. And again, it's because I don't, I don't, I'm not, I can't be casual about it because it's not good enough. And I would love to give my kids the tools to be casual. I also envision a future in which we're traveling a lot, in which like we live in a global society. I want my kids to—Korean is not— 
even one-tenth as useful, one one-hundredth as useful as Spanish is going to be for them. Um, but I, I, I want them to be like, oh, yeah, I can go to Korea. And to not have that sense of um, self-consciousness that I do. That said, they may have more self-consciousness because they, they look less Korean than I do. So their self-consciousness may come from other places, right? Like it, I like we don't have control over that or how they're going to feel about it. But, um, you know, for me, it's not just about the language, too. It's about, like, the culture that comes with yes. the language. And especially with Yiddish, there's the, like, I mean, I think it's telling that the two phrases that you and I know between the <laughs> two of us are so, like, biting, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, I, but I think I sort of, like, I want my daughter to pick that up. <laughs> like, I, I feel like it really shaped me to, like, oh, totally. you know, to be, to be raised by funny, weird Jews. And I do think she'll—I mean, she's she can't help but pick that up from me because that's just who I am. But, like, um, I don't know. Maybe some of it's just getting diluted. <laughs> yeah, I know. But maybe it's just—we absorbed it, and it's sort of, like, in our DNA now, and so your daughter—our daughters have to be that way? Uh, yeah. I'm going to choose to believe that. Okay, me too. Coming up, a mashup woman and her immigrant dad walk into a movie theater. Stay with us. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. We're back with Amy Choi and Rebecca Lair. Since Amy and Rebecca started the Mashup Americans website over three years ago, it's expanded. They consult now with companies on how to reach culturally diverse Americans with their content. And they also co-host the Mashup Americans podcast. Well, so so you guys have a segment on your show um, and on your site where you ask your guests a bunch of questions in a speed round. You 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 ask them all the same questions. Um, so I want to play a little bit of tape from one of those questions. What do you spend money on that your parents never would? So much. <laughs> like I have to take the I have to remember to take the price tags off things because if I give my mother a nice gift, she's always shocked by how much things cost in 2016. <laughs> I come from Mexico where the idea of giving money away or investing money in an in in worthy causes wasn't part of the landscape. Uh, and so I do a lot of the uh, of that and I am proud of it. And probably everything you know, this is the thing that I, I talk to a lot about, uh, like, you know, a ton of immigrant friends about. We're at this weird level where, for a lot of us at least, like, we make more money than our parents, like, ever did combined, right? And it's like when I think about, like, my dad, like, sending three of his kids to school on the little money that he made, that kind of blows my mind a little. 
And so for me, it's like I, I always go on like a ton of trips. I travel so much for, for pleasure. And I feel like my parents never got to do that. Um, and also like my dad, like weirdly not into super cultural events. I remember like one time taking him to the movies and he was like, oh, I should do this more. The cinema is great, but that's never a thing he would spend money on himself for, Mm. you know? And like, man, what did we go see? Some like weird Will Smith movie. And he was so impressed. He was like, oh, I should do this more. I was (laughs) like, yes, dad, you should, you really, you should. So that was um, from your show, Mashup Americans, and we heard from co-host of Top Chef and author Padma Lakshmi, um, Spanglish expert Elan Stevans, and co-host of Call Your Girlfriend, Aminatu So. Um, so Amy and Rebecca, I want to know your answers to this. What do you spend money on that your parents never would? This is Rebecca. So mine is definitely booze. I come from, like, not really drinking juice. Yeah. You know, there's, like, a Manischewitz still at the table on Shabbat, and you're like, you guys, no, it's 2017. We got to move on from this. It's not delicious, and it gives us headaches. So, I mean, buying, you know, out to dinner with my family, I'm hyper-conscious um, about, you know, if I, we order wine or drinks, if I do or if my husband does it, we're very conscious of of that. And and but my mom is starting to be like, mm, I think I want to. Uh, she'll be like, uh, this is a thing in Span in Salvadoran Spanish diminutizes things. So she'll be like, just a little wine. I'm just gonna have a little wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's definitely booze. Um, for me, I. Oh, God. I love stationery. Like, I love paper, like really cute paper, really classy. I love all kinds of pens and paper. Um, and that is something that my parents would never spend money on. Like, I grew up I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And, um, like, going to school, the notebooks and the pens and, like, the pads of paper that I used, they were all, like, the first Chicago bank branded notebooks and paper because my parents would get it for free, like because they were clients at First Chicago Bank. Um, But yeah, I I love the feeling of paper and cracking open a fresh notebook. And I never had that growing up. So you had another answer to that question on your um, website from Alexis Diao. She's um, an associate producer at NPR. She's Filipino-American. The thing that Alexis said she spent money on that her parents wouldn't was family time. She left her job when she became a parent, and she says that to her parents— Quote, this was insane, worrying, apocalyptic even, because they had worked their whole lives and it was a it was a cultural difference. And I wonder, um, how do you guys parent differently than your parents did? Amy, there's so much to unpack, I feel like, for you for you there <laughs> with that one. Um I think also just like also starting a business. My parents are um both architects, so my mom's landscape architect. So they're actually entrepreneurs. So for me to leave it was leave, you know, and to try to start the Mashup Americans as a project felt they're very supportive and and um because they understood from their own experience. And I think for Amy, that's a, a bigger struggle, right? Yeah, well, so I think there's there's two questions here to talk about, um, you know, the the kind of insanity of, of stepping away from work or starting your own business, becoming... I mean, my parents were entrepreneurs because they were forced into it. Um, they came to the U.S., my mom had a medical degree and was a nurse, a trained nurse in Korea. My dad was a trained engineer, and they couldn't get jobs. 
So my dad pumped gas. And then when he finally had a job at Rand Corp in Chicago, you know, it was like after the Vietnam War, all Asians looked the same and he couldn't get promoted. So like he spent a decade there. And then when they got the opportunity, they bought a small business. So they owned a convenience store in the Chicago suburbs. And that's what raised and supported me and my sister and our family growing up. So for them, I don't think entrepreneurship was never something that was, uh, it It was hard to see that as a choice. I think the larger challenge, um, and this goes back to the earlier subject conversation we were having about you can't be what you can't see, is that I think my choice to become a journalist, that was insane because here I was investing my whole life and livelihood and career in something that they literally could not understand. And then now I started a business with Rebecca that is, again, about stories and language. Of course, they understand stories and language and words, but it's not the same one. It's not the one that we share together. So it's so that is a big divide. As far as the parenting question goes, I mean, I grew up in a very... It's funny because it's all relative, right? And it depends on what lens you're looking at. My parents are very liberal on certain things by certain Korean standards. Like we didn't go to church and that that wasn't forced on me. Whereas like most Korean immigrants at the time all grew up in the church and like that was a very big regulating force. Like I was allowed to have boyfriends. I had, you know, like I was allowed to go out in high school. I, you know, I had a curfew, but it was late. Um, so in some ways, like that was very um, American. I'm using, I'm using my air quotes, guys. I'm like fingering <laughs> the air quotes. Um but in other ways, I grew up in a very traditional kind of Confucian patriarchal house, you know. And I think something that, like, people forget about immigrants to the Korean immigrants to the U.S., like, our parents grew up in essentially feudal Korea. Like, Korea only opened up to the West in the war and, like, modernized from, like, deep poverty into what it is today over the course of the past, like, generation or two. So our parents grew up with, like, super traditional values. Like, obedience was the greatest value in our house growing up. Respect to your elders. Like, there isn't—like, the the act of asking a question is almost the most disrespectful thing you can do because it means you are questioning them. Which is like what you've built your livelihood on. Exactly. So this is like, these are things in which are very challenging. Um, like we're challenging growing up is like my personality and my desires emerge, but also things that I obviously as a human being treasure really deeply, like the fact of having open conversations, asking questions, challenging authority, and what I, I'm hoping to instill in my kids. So the way, the framework in which I, I parent my kids is almost entirely opposite. That said, I'm still really invested in my kids being Korean. So like what, what it, again, it's that like tension that, that like we're living in that is really awesome to be able to be like, can I cherry pick? Can I choose the things that I think are really beautiful? Can I take the um, beauty and focus on family and family relationships and the, and like the real, um, community mindset that comes in Korean American culture and give that to my kids without the obligations. Can you? I don't know. I think it's a work in progress, right? Like, we'll see. I think my kids are, we're, we build community every day. I think that we even talking to them as toddlers and how they work with others and how they see other people. But so, yeah, so I, I think we, we're trying really hard to give them that 
like loyalty to family, for example, without it feeling like that loyalty like has to supersede their individuality. So we'll see if it, if it well, I'll report back in 10 years, 15 years. Okay, we'll check in. <laughs> Um, for me too, I think about, you know, having to, having to have sat through sort of a really long traditional Seder, right? Mm -hmm. And, and my family's Seders are pretty raucous and joyous too, and always were. And I, I feel really connected to the way that my family's Jewishness manifests. Um, uh, it's not, it's not so by the book, um, but, you know, there's part of me that is like, why should I force my kid to, like, sit through something long? You know, we could do it in a different way and blah, blah, blah. And then all the other part of me is like, you know what? I learned a lot from that. I learned patience. And I learned, you know, I learned a lot about how the Seder could work so that then I could make my own decisions about how I connect with my Jewishness. But do I have to kind of give her that um, – that strict experience too to kind of learn from, and uh, so I think that that's that's the where I'm struggling. But I, so I'm not sure how I'm different from my parents yet. But I think probably in that the way I connect to Jewish stuff isn't because my husband isn't Jewish isn't as automatic as theirs. In a minute, how to name your Jewish Salvadoran daughter after her Christian relatives. Don't go away. <laughs> Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. We are back with Amy Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Amy and Rebecca feel committed to being progressive, but still keeping their cultural roots, which is a thing that comes up for a lot of us when choosing names for our kids. Rebecca and Amy had a baby name expert on their show to talk about this. Her name is Laura Wattenberg. Here's a clip. If you look back to around 1960, the names Michael and David ranked among the top five names for boys in every single state in America. Are you talking was, about my uncle and my dad? And that's exactly it, that Michael and David in 1960 were popular in North and South, black and white, rich and poor. You cannot tell anything about the person mm. from those names. So it is kind of like a uniform. It's a universal Today, names like that are really hard to find. The culture, the naming culture has fractured, and that means there's a lot more disagreement, and every name signals more about where you come from. So Amy and Rebecca, how did you choose your kids' names? Um, I wanted to honor my late mother-in-law. Um, her name was Christiana, and 
my little Jewish daughter just could not have the name Christiana. So um, I think I also was, was really critical to me. So how can we figure out how to honor her and also to have a name that can sound and be said and spoken in multiple languages. My daughter is Clara Louise or Clara Louise, and my mother-in-law was Christiana Louise. Clara, it was my my grandmother's favorite aunt who helped her family immigrate to Brazil, Tante Clara. And um, and so that was a way of kind of tying that all together. But I think the the mashiest part of that is that it, it had to be a name that um, could be said and, you know, by my family in El Salvador, my family in Israel, Neil's family here um, in the States, and that she could kind of f- move really uh, fluidly between all these cultures. How about you, Amy? We knew that we wanted our kids to have both a Spanish name and a Korean name. Um, so the Korean naming tradition is that um, all within a family, all the kids in a generation share um, one name. So my sister and I, my my older sister's Korean name is Hana, and mine is Hanju. So, and our parents gave those to our to us as like official middle names. So those are on our birth certificate. Like those are our legit names. Um, so for me, we wanted to carry that on. That's how we settled on Chesun and Misun, which are their Korean names. It was essentially like like a toss in the air about whether or not their Korean name would be their first name or their Spanish name would be their first name. I think when it came to our firstborn, it just sounded better when we chose it. Um, Alejandro was just a name that we loved. And what was important about that was that like, it's it's funny because when we're like outward facing, not our family, I'm like, I don't care if it's a funny name to the rest of America. I don't care if like the world couldn't pronounce it. Like this is the name, this is their name and like the world will deal with it, right? Like, but we wanted to make sure that there were nicknames that like my parents could say, which is Alejo or Lejo. So it was something that was very easy for them um, and was just like a great name. Um, And then our daughter, um, there is like a little bit more of a family tie. Her name is Serafina and um, my husband's name is Gabriel. So it's like, it was a weird, slightly Catholic thing. You know, Gabriel's one of the angels. He was a seraphim, Serafina. Also, it's just really pretty. So <laughs> that's how we came to the names. But the and good the, nicknames. Yes. Great nicknames. For many of us, culture comes with certain rites of passage, like a quinceanera in Latin American culture or a bar bat mitzvah in Judaism. But deciding whether you want to keep those traditions for your kids can be complicated. Amy, um, you wrote about a ritual that you wanted to keep from your Korean heritage. Um, So tell me about your son's dole. So the dole is a... uh, it's it's the first birthday celebration. It's celebrating a year of life in Korean culture. And, you know, a lot of family, there's like traditional sweets that are involved, um, a duck, which is a rice cake. But the big uh, tradition is um, where the child chooses their future. 
So <laughs> no uh, pressure, child. No Just big your deal. The destiny. And so I think uh, you have objects that represent a specific future, and the kid like toddles over. What are some examples of the um, objects? So I think the traditional ones are a string for long and healthy life. A pen for a life of letters or scholar, like a to be a scholar. Um, a do 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 paintbrush for an artist, and then money, cash, money, yo, for <laughs> a life of making it rain. Is like everyone <laughs> is everyone disappointed when the baby chooses the paintbrush? Well, or is how it different? well do you know Korean people? <laughs> um, and I will say from my personal experience, my son went straight for the paintbrush. Um, <laughs> And uh, oddly enough, there are hundreds of pictures from my dad's camera where he's holding a $100 bill. So, you know, how did that happen? Wow. <laughs> and then um, my— uh, Those are alternative facts. <laughs> right. So, um, But then, like, everybody adds their own, right? So we also added—we had a filmmaker friend put in a camera lens, um, a doctor friend— uh, actually unbeknownst to us at our son's, snuck in, like, a stethoscope— um, other people put – we also had – I think we had a soccer ball. Um, and then our daughter, she was amazing. She decisively put one hand on the soccer ball and then immediately after put her hand on the money. So oh, okay. I know. She's just going to own a soccer team. Probably. That's what that means. She's very smart. And, you know, when you're planning a mashup celebration, some stuff just seems obvious. So for my sons, we rented out a bar in Brooklyn, and then we had the kimchi taco truck. Come by and cater. So people were having like carne asada with kimchi in a taco. Sometimes it just takes tacos with a Korean topping to make everyone feel included. But sometimes you got to play with tradition to make it work for your family. They're actually isn't the same kind of Jewish welcoming tradition for girls as there is for boys mm-hmm. in, you know, because I mean, the bris. Right, the bris. And there wasn't an obvious way to do that with a girl in Jewish tradition. And I mean, I know that's not necessarily feel good and welcoming to everybody, but I've noted with all of my cousins' kids of who, the boys, you know, that means within seven days, the entire family's coming together to say, welcome, you're part of our tribe. Rebecca and her husband realized there was a part of the bris they could use to welcome their daughter to the world, the naming ceremony. It's interesting because naming ceremonies in Jewish culture have become, for, for girls, have become more common. So we, st- we have to kind of be really proactive about making that happen. Rebecca is planning the naming ceremony for next month. Her daughter and her niece were actually born just four days apart. So they're going to celebrate both of them in one big party. They'll choose the girls' Hebrew names. Rebecca is looking for something related to a bird. And hopefully it'll start with a C to match the C in Clara. She's looking for suggestions if you have any. Rebecca's best friend will be at the ceremony. She's a cantor and she'll sing some prayers. And everyone will wish blessings on the girls, you know, that they'll be strong and curious and that they'll find their own paths to love and doing good in the world. Rebecca knows that not every single ritual from her background and her husband's will fit into Clara's life as she grows. But she wants her daughter to know that this tradition is part of her story now. It's valuable and meaningful, and it is hers to draw on. Amy and Rebecca are great, you guys. If you want to hear more about Mashup Life from them, go find their podcast and much, much more at mashupamericans.com. 
And if you check out their show this week, their guest is me uh, and also my husband, Jonathan. I talk about stuff on there that I have never said on this show before. And Jonathan and I even give marriage advice. Yep, after 10 years, I am now officially qualified to do that. We will put links to that episode and the ones that you heard clips from today on our website, longestshortesttime.com. And while you are there, we want to hear from all of you mashups out there. What traditions are you taking from your culture? Which ones could you do without? Which ones are you reinventing? Tell us everything in the comments for this episode. That's episode 124. This episode was produced by me, Hilary Frank, with Abigail Keel and Kristen Clark. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Layton Brown. We get editorial support from Anne-Marie Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Reka Murthy. Special thanks to Zach Dinerstein, Ryan Connor, and Jocelyn Gonzalez. Next week, on The Longest Shortest Time, we check in with our pal Tristan. He recently woke up feeling pretty bad. Like lying on the tiles of the bathroom floor because how cool they are feels good on your face kind of bad. And I grabbed one of the P-tests and it came back positive. And I was like, oh my God, this is actually happening again. The accidental gay parents are back and we have got a lot of catching up to do. These guys are all-time audience favorites, so you do not want to miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. And while you're there, subscribe to the Mashup Americans, too. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are looking for your stories. Right now, we're especially looking for stories about growing up and, and realizing that that weird thing your family does is a thing that just your family does. We've already heard from some nudists and from a person who didn't realize that their mom had a lisp till they grew up. What is your family's thing? Go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. Guys, I want to tell you about a podcast that I love and I think that you're going to love it too. It's called Brains On. What makes Brains On special is that the show is really driven by kids. Kids submit their questions about the world, and, and they're the ones that get to interview real scientists and experts to find the answers. So kids ask questions like, why do cats purr? How does the internet get to us? Do we all see the same colors? It's all real science, and, and it's super fun for both kids and adults. So, you know, you can listen together. In June, Brains On is launching a special series on cars that is perfect for road trips. So go subscribe now to Brains On on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Stitcher.